There we go. How's that? All right. So if you didn't hear that, First uh, Peter chapter one verse uh, twenty-two, all the way to chapter two, verse two today. And uh, as you're going there again, if you are uh, newish. Uh, we'd love to have you over at our house about one o'clock for some soup. Liz is there right now making it. And uh, so we enjoy for you to come here and uh, to partake of that uh, as we go over here. We've been going through the book of First Peter, uh, particularly with the three theme of being uh, sojourners or exiles or drifters because uh, we've suffered for the faith. We've uh, been going through trials in the faith. And so First Peter is really a book about how to have a steadfast faith or an enduring faith or a durable faith during times of trial. And the reason that I have uh, decided to do that is because I don't, I don't know if you've been in church and you've, you might have come across uh, the saying that suffering brings you closer to God. How many of you heard that in church? Some are, yeah. And the, the, the truth is, is that's sort of a half-truth. It's not suffering itself that brings you closer to God. It's how you respond in the midst of it. If it was true that just suffering brought you closer to Jesus, then people wouldn't walk away from Jesus when they suffered. But we all know that there are people, probably in our own lives, we could probably name, that have gone through some sort of significant trial in their life. And as a result, they have walked away from Jesus. It's not suffering itself, it's how you respond. And so we've been learning that uh, in order to have a durable faith, you've got to do things like prioritize your relationship with Jesus above all else. Because you have an inheritance that doesn't spoil or fade. That we are highly favored. And so as a result, you and I need to cling on to Jesus as as the thing or the person that matters most. Last week we talked about the idea that we need to be able to think clearly and that holiness is a way to think clearly today, or how how we think clearly. And our text today is going to give us just one more thing that is just as important as personal holiness to help you and I have a steadfast faith. So let me read the text for you, Uh, and we begin at verse 22 of chapter 1. It says this, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere and brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable seed, through the living and abiding word of God, And then he quotes Isaiah. He says this, All flesh is like grass, and its glory is like the the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord will remain forever. And And this is the word, the good news, that was preached to you. So put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. And like newborn infants long for pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into your salvation, if you indeed have tasted that the Lord is good. That is the reading of the word of God. and That's a mouthful, so let me break it down for you this morning. Uh, 
what I would say is the main point of the paragraph that we have just read is that you and I are to make a deeply felt, lasting love for each other a priority. There are lots of ways uh, the Bible talks about love. The Bible talks about love in terms of agape love, that sacrificial love. That's the kind of love that Jesus demonstrated on the cross. Then there's all kinds of other kinds of love. Eros love, the, top, the kind of romantic love that uh, we share between a husband and wife. There are other kinds of love, but the kind of love that it's mentioning here in the text is a brotherly love. It's, it's a love for other believers, not just for other people, not just for the lost, but for you are you and I are to have a deeply sincere, passionate love for the people in this room. I know that many of you, uh, I know that there's no such thing as a perfect church or a perfect pastor, uh, but one of my favorite examples of a pastor that loved well and consequently a church that loved well is a pastor by the name of Chuck Smith. Again, he wasn't a perfect church uh, by any means, but I always loved his ministry and his church for three reasons. They did three things that I think uh, set them apart as a different church. Number one is they put Jesus as their first love. Number two, they preached the Bible chapter by chapter and verse by verse. And number three, they loved people really, really, really well. His claim to fame happens during the 60s, and he's just a pastor of a church-like manner, actually. Maybe a little bit different than manner. Manor, we're, we're about 100 people. His church was about 16 to 20 people in Costa Mesa, California. And he was pastoring during the height of the hippie movement. And if you know that movement, you know that what happened was a bunch of young people decided to leave their homes and wander the streets of the city looking for truth. Getting high and all kind of drugs and they were homeless and they were barefoot. At first, the story goes that Chuck Smith was repulsed by young people's long hair and clothing. In a television interview, Chuck said that his attitude changed one night when he was complaining about hippies. He said that they just need a bath. However, that all changed when he looked over at his wife. They were watching TV, and he saw his wife weeping and praying for these kids. His wife turned to him and told him that he needed to reach out to them. They needed to share the love of Jesus with them. So Chuck intentionally spread the gospel among these teenager hippies, and they did come to faith in Jesus Christ. But because they had nowhere to stay, he invited them into their home. You imagine a bunch of barefoot, dirty smelling hippies in the living room, camping in the backyard, in the attic, everywhere. Within a week, 21 new converts were residing in his house. 21 people. And what started happening is he started inviting them to church. The church started filling on Sunday morning to the point where there was no more room in the pews. And so these hippies who had just become Christians started sitting on the floor. This actually angered the church congregation because they had just spent 
a considerable amount of money renovating the church and putting a new shag carpet in. Irate and irritated that these hippies were coming to church, they talked to the pastor and the pastor, and they said, the, their feet are dirty. They don't wear shoes, and they're coming into this building with all their grime and guck and muddying up the carpet. So you know what Chuck Smith did? I'll show you what he did. The action that he did next was so profound, they actually made a little bit of a movie of it, and I'd like to show you just a three-minute clip of it. They're making our congregation uncomfortable. Is it on? Well, maybe they should be uncomfortable. Maybe we all should. Maybe it's my job to make us uncomfortable. I haven't been doing it. Chuck, stop. This is enough. This is a house of worship. And yes, we expect a certain level of dignity here. These girls are wearing halter tops and half of them aren't wearing shoes. They're staining the new shag carpet with their bare feet. Oh, yeah, let's be sure to save the carpet. You keep this up and you're going to drive away the only contributing members that we've got. You hearing me now? What is going on? Understood and judged, this is where you belong. If you feel ashamed or trapped in something you've done or are doing, you will find forgiveness and freedom right here. No guilt trips. <laughs> This is your home. And I want you to tell all your friends about it. There is a place for you. Now that door is open all the time for you. Any time of day. And if... In case you're wondering, that one act spawned a movement that we still feel today. 
in, two, in a two-year time since that act of foot washing, Calvary Chapel boasted a record 8,000 baptisms and, and 20,000 conversions to the Christian faith. And just in case you're wondering if that was a fad, in the time span of our own church existence, they planted over 1,500 churches, all because they loved. They've put Jesus first. They put their love of Jesus first. They taught the Bible, and they loved each other really, really well. This small church, this church of 16 people who had less resources than matter, who had less budget than matter, who had less talent than matter, was able to reach and love a generation that impacted the entirety of the United States in some way. And again, I say that the church is not perfect by any way. You could probably find a fault in it. But I'm probably telling you straight out that the ability to put Jesus first, to love Jesus with everything, to put your grounding in the word, and to love other Christians deeply is profoundly impactful to us. Loving other Christians is just as important as your personal holiness. And what our text is trying to say today is that sincere and deep relationships with other Christians are just as, as, just as essential for the survival of your faith as your holiness is, as making Jesus your treasure. You need to love people, and we need to be able to create an atmosphere of love Love is the primary goal of the church, first to God, and then to each other, and then to the not lost. Not as the world defines love, but a biblically defined love. Jesus didn't advise us as Christians to think about loving each other. He commanded it, John 13, uh, 35. By this, all, all people, you will know that you are my disciples. How are they to know that you're disciples? By the fact that they... One, love each other. First John says a lot about love. First uh, uh, John 4.20 says, If anyone says he loves God and hates his brother, he is a liar. Love for fellow believers is a sign that you and I love God. Loving, look at Jesus' own words. A new command I give to you. Oh, come on. Love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, everyone know that you are my disciples if you love one another. I'm going to say something, and I'm going to say something very important. You've heard me say it before, is I believe that you cannot get close to Jesus and run far away from people. It just doesn't happen. You cannot love Jesus and be consumed with Jesus and have a passion for Jesus Christ and not love his people. It's like saying that water isn't wet. It just doesn't make any sense. And our text today gives us three observations about love that I want to make clear to you and I today as we go through the text. So the first one is this, if you want to follow along in scriptures, and that's this, is that inner holiness leads to brotherly love. Another way to say that, or maybe a Dan Renton way of saying that, is the more godly you are, the more relational you become. Now, that's not, I want to be careful to say because you're saying, Dan, I'm an introvert and I'm an extrovert. It has nothing to do with whether you're an introvert or an extrovert. It has everything to do with your ability to love people. Listen, listen to the text this morning. It says this. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. That's the holiness part, okay? 
for a sincere and brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. This matter of a pure heart that leads to love is something that I need to unpack, and I'll do it rather quickly so we can move on, but I want you to understand what is going on here. Imagine that you are living in the Old Testament times and you are going to church. And what you would do is before you would go to the church or before you would go to the temple, you would undergo a ritual cleansing. And the idea is, is that you must approach God with an attitude of purity or holiness. However, it was only an external thing. The, the actual water didn't wipe away the sin. It just was an act of externality. So it was possible that the church leader or the priest in that case went through an external purification uh, contest, uh, con- uh, uh, con- purification thing, uh, uh, ordeal, but there could be corruption in the inside of the heart. When Peter uses the word purified, he isn't talking about that kind of purification. He's talking about the purification that happens inside your souls, your insides, your heart. Your souls have to by be Purified by what? Obeying the truth. You should have been purified. You you should be be you're being purified by actively obeying and following Jesus. Everyone, every genuine Christian is an obedient Christian. Doesn't mean we're perfect at it. Doesn't mean we make our salvation by it. But we do follow God. Uh, another way to say that might be to say something like this: Since you have come to Jesus. You are growing in holiness. And you've been learning to say no to sinful, your sinful nature and yes to Jesus. So it's not about an external purity, it's about an internal purity. And what he's saying is this holiness leads us to loving our brother. And I want to make it clear that you cannot grow closer in holiness and further away from Christians. It just doesn't happen. To be holy means that you are a, in some relationship, in some sort of aspect, are also trying your best to be a relational Christian. And I would argue, and you've heard me say this before, that the more mature among us are not those who have the most Bible knowledge. Satan has a lot of Bible knowledge. They are the ones that love well. You cannot grow in holiness without loving people in your life, without being in relationship to other people, and particularly in relationship to other Christians. Inner holiness leads to brotherly love. And I just want to make uh, just a point here is that I really think that, well, maybe I'll go back to it later, but I'll, I'll move on to this. It goes on to say that the love must be sincere. The Greek word is phile, which is, which means that we are not only required to love each other, but we are, it means that we have this brotherly love, but we, are, we like each other, we are drawn to each other, and we enjoy each other, and we can't wait to see each other. We just enjoy each other. I don't know how many of you have heard uh, the phrase in church, you can love people, but you don't have to like people. Have you heard of that one? No, good. Yeah, Cliff is like, no, I haven't heard of that one. Well, that's good. I don't necessarily get that from this text. It kind of seems to me that love in this sense means that we enjoy the fellowship of other Christians. 
that we have a deep concern for them, that we have a deep affection for them. So I just want you to stop and uh, consider that for a minute, that, pe- <clears throat> that Peter believed that if you were growing in holiness, it also meant that you were growing in a genuine love and affection for the church family. It's not just some Christians, it's all Christians. So that would include those Christians who are too emotional, those who tend to be more reserved and don't express their feelings easily. It includes brothers and sisters of different income brackets. It includes brothers and sisters in Christ of all races. The short, the fat, the thin, the skinny, the ones who laugh loudly and say, oh man, amen, brother, in the sermon. Those who don't know how educated those who don't have an education or those who struggle to read, they are your brother and sister. And because you're growing in holiness, you have a deep, sincere affection and care for them. Listen, I know that there will be some Christians that you will be closer with than others. That's okay. I'm not saying that everyone has to be your best friend. You're allowed to have other Christians in your life that are closer than others. Look at Jesus. You have the 72, the 12, and the 3. But you, but you sincerely are to love all of them. Read the text again. Since you are growing in holiness, having purified your souls by obeying Jesus, why? Because you are having a sincere brotherly love I need you to love each other honestly and deeply from your pure heart. I really believe that one of the key tenets, the key things that you and I need in order to have a durable faith is to love each other well. And I'm not talking about a kind of love where, you know, every Sunday we, get, we, we come here and I get you to stand up and shake everyone's hand and say welcome I'm not talking about that kind of love. That's a good kind of love. I'm not talking about the kind of love where um, uh, you're nice to each other and you kind of wave when you drive by or uh, see each other at idea. I'm talking about this deep, compassionate, I hope you're okay, I'm in your corner, I'm fighting for you kind of love. An example of our own church. There was a couple here who was relatively new. And... uh, I was one about a, uh, this fall. I, I, did, I asked them if I could come over for lunch to ask them how they were doing and just to see if they were connecting in ma- with manner. Okay, so the lunch went on, it was great. And then I asked Stan, Stan, are you and your family connecting here at church? How is it going? And then Stan says, told me a story that floored me and almost brought him to tears. He had explained to me that he had just moved, and I'm sorry if I'm going to mess the story up, Stan. Uh, He explained to me how he had just moved, and uh, he was working on something in the house. He had to tent something. He had to put a tarp over something. So I I don't know exactly what happened, but he decided, I'm going to call three people, three guys I'm going to call, and I'm going to ask them for their help to to put this tarp over whatever it was that he was putting them. What's that? A greenhouse, thank you. I should really get you to tell the story. So he called three guys from the church. Hey, can you come help me out? And all of them said yes. But what was interesting about it was not just that they had come over and said, hey, we're going to help you out for 20 minutes and leave. They said, hey, do you mind if we bring our families? 
So they brought their families. We'll make it a big campfire. We'll make it a big barbecue. And so this act, this one act of something that simply took 20 minutes became something where it was a big social night and people were playing and having fun and enjoying each other. And this is what he said to me, and I'll remember it because there was, there was a little, I won't say he's crying, but there was this little bit of water in his eye. And he said this, for the first time, I felt like I had a true brotherhood. Almost quote unquote. Do you know who those guys were? I'm sorry for embarrassing. They're Joel, Trevor, and Andrew. That's the kind of love that we're talking about. As you grow in holiness, you are to deeply love each other. How are we to love each other like that? Well, can I ask you to consider a question? As I don't know if you can move the slide forward or not. But I would just ask this internal question of you, do I really love the people in this room? I want you to look to the right, to the left, and just internally, you don't have to say it out loud, do I really love the people in this room? Scale from 1 to 10. You can't choose 5. 5 means in the middle, and that's a safe answer. There's no 5. So what do you do? You On a scale from 1 to 10, how much do you love this church, these people in this room? And here's what I'm going to say. Whatever your answer is, I would just ask you to pray that we become, have a loving spirit or a loving atmosphere within this building. And that's what I really like about that, that, that illustration is, it's a little, I, I really like the way that Chuck Smith did that. Now, here's the thing. I'm not saying that when you come to church next week, you should take off your shoes and let me wash your feet. That's not what I'm saying. Okay. However, I don't, did you catch the atmosphere that was in that, that was conveyed by that? That's what I strive for for Manor. That when we're a church, and I'm at IGA, and I tell people I pastor Manor, I'm really hoping that they say two things about our church. That we love God passionately. That Jesus is our first love. That's what I want them to say. But the second thing is, man, they love each other well. So uh, going on from that, I got two more real quick. Observation number two, love must be lasting because the gospel is lasting. Uh, have you purified your soul? Uh, maybe go on to the next one because I got the wrong verse for that one. Verse 23, it says this. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable Though through the living and abiding through the living and abiding word, for all flesh is like grass, and its glory is like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower fails, but the word of the Lord remains, and the word of the Lord is the good news that was preached to you. The love that you and I are to have for each other is a lasting love because the gospel is lasting. Maybe you haven't noticed at this point, but Peter has been focusing on things that endure throughout the first chapter. Chapter 1, verse 3 or 4, he talks about the idea that you are born again into a living hope that's imperishable. Verse 7 says that gold perishes, but your faith in Jesus lasts forever. And in verse 23 to verse 25, it's saying something again. It's saying your love for Jesus or the gospel or the word of God that was preached to you is something that will never die. But our lives do. He quotes Isaiah, uh, the prophet, uh, chapter 40, verse 7. The grass withers, the flower fades. 
When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are like grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Everything dies. Everything passes away, but the word of Jesus lasts forever. You and I are here for a moment and then we are gone. I want you to go to the most impressive buildings in your area. So I guess in our case it would be the water tower. I want you to examine it. And I want you to think about the engineering that went into it. And it seems like something that would stand a long time. But it will eventually rust out and be no more. But when Jesus was preached to you, you believe something eternal. Because eternity, according to Ecclesiastes, has been planted in you. Jesus' love for you lasts forever, so our love for each other must be just as lasting. And last observation is this. Watch out for those things that destroy love. Chapter 2, verse 1 says this. So put away all malice and all deceit and all hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Let me really quickly go through this. What's malice? Let me give you an example of malice. Uh, Years ago, uh, I read a very famous Christian book on dating. Uh, and the idea was, is don't date until you want to get married, kind of like the whole courtship thing. And I was, you, you guys remember it if you were in the early 2000s and a teenager, or you were a parent in the early 2000s of a teenager. And what I took from the book is simply this. As I said, the 13-year-old version of me said, hey, maybe just don't date for the sake of having a girlfriend. Pretty solid advice, eh? That's what I took. So that's what I did. And you fast forward to the year 2019 a year before I moved to Manor. And the author of that book came and spoke at the church I was serving at. And he said, Dan, this, this author is going to be here. Could you introduce the author? So I did. Right? He said, hey, this is so-and-so. This is the author. He's going to be speaking today on behalf of Compassion International. And uh, I just want to say that, you know, there was a book I read. In the, uh, some of you know where the story is going, right? Uh, there's a book I read by, by this author. It really blessed me and helped me love my wife well and all this kind of thing. And right in the middle of it, right, right as I was doing it, he interjected me. and he, said, he just kind of stopped, right? And for 15 minutes, he apologized for that book and said that was wrong, that was completely wrong, it's hurt people, all this kind of thing. So here I am in front of my church, 300 people at that time, right? And I'm just blessed and saying, hey, how great this book is. And he's just going on on this big tirade about how he renounced the book and all that kind of thing. And the long story short is, I felt super embarrassed, wouldn't you? Right? A year later, so now I'm at Manor, okay? This is probably two months into being here at Manor. And I get word, it it goes throughout all of Christian media at the time, that this particular author renounced his faith. Okay. And for and here, here's here's where malice comes in. This is why I'm telling the story. Okay, there's a verse in Proverbs, uh, Proverbs twenty four seventeen, I think it is, that says, "Do not rejoice when your enemy falls." Okay, and for a millisecond, for ten seconds, that what the Bible calls the sinful nature, the flesh, the old man, went went inside me and went good. And I was a pastor. I was this pastor. That's malice. Malice 
is when you want something harmful to happen to someone else, right? You're, you're happy when they're suffering. You're annoyed when their life is good, okay? You want, it's a desire to destroy someone, bring them down, have them fired, have their marriage ruined, their family ruined, even their church ruined, and it's just this rampant of wickedness, and it will destroy the love we have for each other. Second is deceit. And that's the attempt to mislead each other by telling lies. Peter will mention this again in chapter 3, verse 10. Whoever desires to love life and see good deeds, let him keep his tongue from evil and and his lips from speaking deceit. God remembers the lies that we speak in the attempts to hide our true motives. Have you ever noticed how many sins are hidden in just this one? There's a lot. There's hypocrisy. And the kind of hypocrisy here is plural. It means that it's hypocrisy of every kind. It means that on the inside, we are very much different from how we present ourselves on the outside. Why do we do that? But I think that's because there's a yearning in our hearts to be loved, but we don't think that showing the people who we really are will, will, will result in that love. It will result in that re, re, that it will result in rejection. So what happens is you and I project this image of ourselves that we think other people will love. But you know what the truth is, is that when you and I come to Jesus, there should be no guilt, no shame, no fear, no regret, no jealousy, nothing. And yet we decide to hide who we are. Can I just ask you a question? How are we as a church supposed to deeply love each other if you hide who you really are? How much can we love you if you don't show us the real you? The answer is not much because the parts that you're showing us aren't real. And then what winds up happening is something happens in church and then you're hurt in some way and you go, well, they don't really love me and it's because you've never really given us the chance to. It goes on to say that there's envy. Envy is this idea of desiring what you cannot have. It's looking at someone else and going, I want what they have. And then there's slander. Slander involves taking someone else down by the stories we begin to spread. Stories that others begin to believe and then they pass on as if they were true. Slander is a very evil sin and I think it's one of those sins that you and I don't think is bad, but it is pretty bad. I want you to consider the fact that slander is what was used to justify killing Jesus on the cross. They said things about Jesus that weren't true. The reason slander is used so often is because it's very effective, isn't it? So the word of God tells us that in order to love, we've got to avoid these four things. So how do you and I uh, avoid these four things? Well, in closing... Let me read to you what the last part of this passage says. It says this. Chapter 2, verse 2, it says, Like newborn babies, you must crave spiritual milk so that you will grow into a full experience of salvation. That you and I are to cry out for nourishment and and now that we have tasted and seen what the Lord has done. What does that mean? Well, when you're in church long enough, the, the idea of milk is usually used as a metaphor. You know the idea of milk and solid food? It's kind of used as a metaphor between 
solid teaching or advanced teaching and basic teaching, but that's actually not what it's used for as a metaphor here. As a metaphor, it's trying to tell you that you and I, like newborn babies, are to long for that which feeds our soul. That's how you should read that. And what is to feed our soul? That is the word of God. This passage is talking about the longing for those things that nurture our soul and maintains in this body. And in this case, I would say what feeds your soul is the word of God, the Bible. And how do you rid yourself of the things that I just talked about, the malice and the slander and all that? You crave nourishment from the word of God. Friends, what you and I want to do is to agree with God's word even when it seems hard or harsh or even when you're struggling to see it or even receive it. Because when you agree with God's word, you are able to align yourself with its truth. And when you then, when you start to see, you start to see your life out of the lens of the Bible and you are able to detect where the deceit and the hypocrisy and the jealousy and the unkind talk exist in your life. Do you want to know what the common mistake we humans make surrounding this? Our, our knee-jerk reaction is to say, not me, I don't do that. I'm not deceitful, I'm not a hypocrite, I'm not jealous, I'm certainly not unkind in what I say. In fact, most of us would can, like to contend that we are just the opposite of that, we, we have good hearts. Do you know what you do when you, when you allow yourself to say that to yourself? You blind yourself from ever being able to see if it exists in your life. If you tell yourself it doesn't exist, then you wouldn't recognize it even if it was staring you right in the face. Can people do that? Of course they can. Because you have noticed that too, haven't you? Right? You have gone to somebody and you have said, I can't believe they can't see how jealous they are or envious they are or whatever it is. Why can't they see it? Because they don't think it exists. But when you allow yourself to be nourished by the word of God and see your life through the lens of the Bible, then I would argue that you can detect it in your life. So rather than get defensive... You want to be able to say, you want to be able to pray after reading the word. It's like, Holy Spirit, help me see where the deceit is in my mind. Where the hypocrisy exists in my actions. Where jealousy exists in my heart. And help me hear the words I would speak that are unkind. Like if you would go and pray that, right? Over your relationships. Like you go home and you evaluate whether or not you like the service. Well, you just pray this, right? Pray and just, God... Where, where's the hypocrisy in my heart? Where's the jealousy in my heart? Where is it in my family? Where is it at work? Where is it in the relationships I have in church? And then here's one last thing that I would uh, consider you to do. What you do is when God gives you a name or an area, a relationship where those things exist, just replace it with the opposite. Replace malice with doing something good for that person. Replace deceit with speaking honestly. Replace hypocrisy with being authentic. You know how you be authentic? Here, I'll give you, if you want to learn how to be authentic in church without going overboard, 
Here's what I would encourage you to do the next time you're in a prayer group or a small group or something like that. Try this, right? Is just say, you know, something that people might not know about me is fill in the blank. And then whatever it is, something big or small. But it's got to be something that no one really knows about you. Like the fact that I got embarrassed by a celebrity Christian. (laughs) That's how you be honest. Replace envy with celebration. When something good happens for somebody, you're like, man, I want that. You you replace it and you celebrate with them that they got that job or they got that something good is going on in your life. You You go, I'm happy for you, brother. I'm happy for you, sister. And just be content with where God has placed you in life. Or lastly, you, plan, you, you replace slander with public praise. I think we really need to work on public praise. I know uh, some of us are afraid that when we publicly praise people, we're praising them and not God. I understand that. But there's this verse in 1 Timothy 5.19. It's a verse about eldership. And it, does anyone know what this verse says? Do not entertain an, exa- an accusation against a... Elder, unless it's brought by two or three witnesses. So in the context of First Timothy, it's saying, don't, don't even hear something slanderous against someone leading in the church unless you're hearing it from multiple sources. I think that's just good wisdom for other Christians. Right? That you should not entertain a slanderous word against other Christians unless maybe you're hearing it from other sources. And maybe there's something that's going in that you need to speak into. But I would say that if if someone is coming to you and speaking ill of another Christian in front of you, uh, negative, here's what I would encourage you to do. You you could do a couple things. You could do, you could keep it in the back of your mind until you start seeing evidence of it elsewhere, right? But the other thing I would encourage you to do is Assume that it's not true until it's otherwise proven. But I, I, would ask, I would also ask you to publicly praise them. Right? Is there something good about them that you can say? It doesn't mean that the slander actually might be correct. Right? But that should be done privately and talked to in a, a graceful way. Not on Facebook. And not on uh, this kind of thing. Uh, there are people out there that, you know, they will... Living in the city is very, very hard because everyone's got a smartphone. And if you do the wrong thing on the bus and you're annoyed another person, it goes right on Facebook for everyone to see. That's, that's not the kind of thing that Christians should do. The Christians, if we have issues against each other, if we're concerned about each other, we should go talk to the Christian directly. But we should encourage one another to say, hey, that person the other day, I saw them in the church and I'm so glad that they brought their family to church the other day. They could be at IHOP in Calgary scarfing down bad pancakes. (laughs) Instead, they brought their kids to church. We should praise God for that. We should encourage each other. I hope you've noticed that I've been trying to do that during my tenure here. That I've been trying to be a cheerleader for you, that I, when I see you do something good, that I encourage you because I'm trying to model or show an example, and I'm not perfect at it, but this kind of love. Brothers and sisters, if you and I are to survive the trials that you and I are about to face, 
suffering for our faith, the persecution for our faith, then I'm going to tell you a secret. You need other Christians. And you need to love other Christians. And you need to love them deeply. And before I close, I'm going to close with one other thing. I really want to encourage you parents who have kids in youth to not dismiss so quickly the integral part of silly youth group nights in the faith formation of your children. There are sometimes what happens is is youth groups all over Three Hills and Calgary, they'll do Bible study nights, they'll do fun nights, and sometimes what happens is uh, parents and even kids will be like, why are we doing fun nights? We should be doing always Bible study. And And I agree, you should be in the Word. A youth group that is always fun shouldn't, is, is not a healthy youth group. But I want to say to you, don't dismiss so quickly the trivial nights that happen at youth group. Why? Because here's what I've noticed. I've noticed that the youth that come to youth group, regardless if it's a fun night or a serious night or whatever it is, what winds up happening is they build trust with each other because they spend time together. And then when they grow up, and then when they uh, leave youth group and they become, quote-unquote, part of the big church, like adult church, then it's easier for them to connect relationally with everyone else because they spent five or six years building relationships over silly things and all that kind of thing. There was a, just, just a quick story about this. I, I, I was running a youth group event, and I had the school bus and uh, we were coming back from the school. It was an awful event, just like the worst kind of event. I would be a bad, you wouldn't want to be a part of my youth group. If, if it, it was just bad, okay? But I was coming back, and I thought, I'll make it right by getting the kids Slurpees. So I took the whole bus, school bus, 70 kids, and I parked right outside this 7-Eleven. I got a whole bunch of Slurpees. It's minus 48, 48. We go in, we get the Slurpees, we come back, and I locked the keys in the bus. And it's minus 40, Okay? With a wind chill, okay? So you got to picture this, right? It's minus 40. It's been a bad night. The kids are drinking Slurpees. The kids aren't smart. They didn't put their coats on. So now it's minus 40, and they're in shorts and a T-shirt. And I'm going to get these kids, and big, I'm going to get fired, okay? And so I'm looking. I can't, I got to figure out what to do to keep these kids warm until we get the help and the only thing that was open, because the 7-Eleven wouldn't let us back in with 70 kids. They were just no way. And there was a BMO ATM machine that was still open. So I piled all 70 kids into that teller room, that ATM room, that just because it was warm. It was the world's worst game of sardines, right? <laughs> it was the worst night. No spiritual value whatsoever. No Bible study. And I just hated it. It was one of those nights I said, I should quit and be a senior pastor. I don't have to deal with this. Years later, after that happened, I had these youth that came up to me and said, Dan, that was the best night I ever had a youth group. And I was like, you sat in an ATM teller for two hours. And he says, yeah, but that's where I built relationship. Relationship with other brothers and sisters that now as a young adult, I go to for prayer and all that kind of thing. So just a side note, don't dismiss the fun stuff 
because it's not Bible student. <laughs> Those fun things build trust. Those and trust builds relationship, and relationship goes deep. And when relationship goes deep, you can love each other well in those times. The kids that had the hardest time after high school were the ones that picked and chosen what kind of event they would go to. Love each other well. And if you love each other well, I promise you, I promise you, you will have a faith that will endure. Amen? Amen. Let's close with one more song.